Hello, and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 41st episode of the Metacast entitled Band of Brothers, great HBO show as well. An analysis of a Game of Thrones, John 5, in which Jon Snow is officially offered a place in the Night's Watch but doesn't feel right about it unless his BFF, Samuel Tarly, gets to come along as well. This episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lords Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and Sir Travis decided to become a lord. He is now Lord Travis, Master of Ships. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you, as always. And I just want to say, Jeff, I love that the HBO show we gave a shout-out to on our show is not Game of Thrones, <laughs> but rather Band of Brothers. That's so perfectly on brand. Yes. We do, we do what we can to stay on brand here at the Not A Cast podcast, but yeah. So our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the other HBO TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Clint W., a sworn sword, who asks, A quick question inspired by Fire and Blood, which we just recorded a Patreon episode on. Yes. What do you think Princess Daria's letter to Aegon once said? Alternately, what are your favorite theories? Would love to hear your takes on this giant mystery George leaves us. On the passage from Fire and Blood, Volume 1, with some added details and theories, it was then that Princess Daria presented the king with a sealed letter from her father. For your eyes only, your grace. King Egan read Prince Nymor's words in open court, stone-faced and silent, whilst seated on the Iron Throne. When he rose afterward, men said, his hand was dripping blood. He burned the letter and never spoke of it again, but that night he mounted Valerian and flew off across the waters of Blackwater Bay to Dragonstone upon its smoking mountain. When he returned the next morning, Egan Targaryen agreed to the terms proposed by Nymor. Soon thereafter, he signed a treaty of eternal peace with Dorne. <laughs> eternal, right? Eternal. That lasted forever, yes. <laughs> to this day, no one can say with certainty what might have been in Daria's letter. Some claim it was a simple plea from one father to another, heartfelt words that touched King Egan's heart. <laughs> sure. I didn't mean to giggle. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Others insist it was a list of all those lords and noble knights who had lost their lives during the war. Certain septons even went so far as to suggest that the missive wasn't sorcelled that had been written by the Yellow Toad before her death, using a vial of Queen Rhaenys' own blood for ink so that the king would be helpless to resist its malign magic. Grandmaster Clegg, who came to King's Landing many years later, concluded that Dorne no longer had the strength to fight. Driven by desperation, Clegg suggested, Prince Nymar might have threatened that, should his peace be refused. He would engage the faceless men of Braavos to kill King Egan's son and heir, Queen Rhaenys' boy, Anus, then but six years old. It may be so but no man will ever truly know. Great question from Sir Clint W. Certainly a big question that has occupied the fandom for some time. Fuel was added to the fire by Fire and Blood Volume yes. 1. So what do you think, Jeff? What was in that letter? Not the pink letter, but the, the blood letter. The red letter. The, the red letter. I think, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I It's it's a fascinating mystery in that, that started really in the world of Ice and Fire where people were like, knew that this letter had arrived from Dorne to Aegon, and then Aegon immediately took off from King's Landing and flew to Dragonstone, and then he came back the next day and declared an eternal peace with Dorne. From reading the, the passage from Fire and Blood correctly, there's basically four theories that Gildane offers. One, the, the wrong one, the absolutely wrong one, 
is that, uh, you know, it was a simple plea from one father to another. Heartfelt words that touched King Aegon's heart. No, I, I don't think that's what was going on here. I mean, one of the things that we talked about in our Fire and Blood episode is how fucking brutal the first Ornish War was and how much more brutal it got in Fire and Blood versus the World of Ice and Fire. Like the amount of atrocities that were committed by both sides in this war was astronomical. And this war, I don't feel like would have been ended by someone saying, just remember that we're both fathers and shit like that. I, I don't think that was Aegon the first necessarily perspective. And I don't feel it was the Dornish perspective either. The second theory that's offered there is that it was a list of lords and noble knights who had lost their lives during the war. I, again, I don't know why that would sway someone like Aegon the Dragon to abandon the war in Dorne. I mean, I, I guess like we've lost so many people at this point in time. Why not just give up the war? Yeah, I guess. But at the same time, Aegon is still pressing the war at that point. Like there's no indication from both the World of Ice and Fire and from Fire and Blood that Aegon wanted to end the war anytime soon. Uh, the third one is that it was ensconced, ensorcelled rather, that's a really fun word right there, by the Yellow Toad uh, of Dorne, who, the, the Princess of Dorne at the time, using a vial of Queen Rhaenys' blood for ink. Now, that one is kind of interesting. I'm going to talk about that as a potential possibility, but a little bit kind of more twisted and much more evil than, than what's put it at, point out in this, in this passage. Hmm, okay. And then finally, the, the other theory that's offered is that they were going to send the Faceless Men after, after Aenys. I don't know that that's a possibility, really. I mean, there's really been no indication, both from the first five books, from Song of Ice and Fire, The World of Ice and Fire, and from Fire and Blood, that Dorne and Bravos have much of a connection beyond Oberyn Martell being signing that treaty between him and Sir Raymond Derry in order to kind of marry Viserys to Arianne in the main series. That's really the only Bravosi Dornish connection that we really ever know of, as far as I know. So, what actually happened? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting mystery. I mean, it's it's a fascinating mystery. I mean, I I, I my th- my idea has been around since the War of Ice and Fire came out, which is that Aegon received a letter from Dorne indicating that Rhaenys was still alive. So one of the things they talk about in the in Fire and Blood and also in the World of Ice and Fire is that there's a number of different perspectives and different variations of what happens what happened when Rhaenys was brought down over Dorne, over Hellhold specifically. Did she die in the fall? Did she die from the bolt itself? Did she survive the fall and die later on? Or did she survive? And I think that is the perspective that I generally take is that Rhaenys was still alive, but in a really horrible, terrible condition and was being tortured daily and had all these terrible things being done to her down in Dorne. And the Dornish offer was essentially end the war and will mercy kill her. And I think that's I, I, that it's not one of the theories that's presented by Gildane in Fire and Blood Volume 1, but it is the theory that I still hold to, even if he's offering a couple new possibilities. Now, I think this theory is the correct one just because I think as soon as Aegon reads the letter, he flies immediately to Dragonstone. So why does he fly to Dragonstone? I mean, I, I, I've been talking for long enough. Emmett, why do you think that, that Aegon flew to Dragonstone? Well, that is an interesting question. I mean, some people have proposed that maybe the letter had something to do with dragon eggs or something else valuable on Dragonstone that they had stolen or were threatening to steal and he was going to check on it. Part of me feels like just Dragonstone is where Egan goes when he wants to be alone, when he wants to be intense, and like he feels a connection to his, his past and his family and the Valyrian heritage in the same way that like, you know, the 
chamber of the painted table is presented in the A Song of Ice and Fire is where Stannis goes when he wants to be alone and just wants everyone to leave him alone. <laughs> Which is all the time. Exactly. All the time, exactly. <laughs> uh, so part of me feels like Egan was just going back there just to kind of weigh the intensity of the decision he was making more than anything else. Uh, kind of retreat to the to the Dragonstone womb for Egan. But yeah, I mean, I agree with your theory. I think that fits both the kind of nature of the first Ornish War, how brutal it was, as you were saying, yeah. the elements of torture and just intense reprisals that went into that war and kind of established the pattern for how the fighting would go across the marches. Like when Eris Oakhart talks about the, the tapestries of atrocities right. in, in Old Oak that he was raised on just so casually. This is kind of the beginning of that. So yeah. it, it fits that. And I agree with you that the explanations put forth in Fire and Blood feel almost deliberately flawed. Yes. Uh, yeah, the the plea from one father to another, that's that's not moving. Again, the conqueror. <laughs> the same with the list of the Vietnam War Memorial list of all the lords and noble knights. Like, as we've seen elsewhere in the series, that's more likely to cause Egan to go, yeah, that's why I'm still fighting, because otherwise <laughs> they died for nothing. I want them to be part of my glorious conquest. No, it's kind of, it's, I mean, for, it's kind of like sunk cost, essentially, right? It's essentially inflaming yeah. that sunk cost fallacy. But I mean, as, as much as it is a logical fallacy, it is still an emotional response that someone would make. Like, oh, we've lost... 60,000 people fighting this war. Why would I give up right now? So many people have died in order to bring us here. Right. You see this when Rob is crowned and Catelyn is arguing for peace and people are saying, what was all our losses worth if we just go back to how it was? You know, I think Quentin has his own version of the sunk cost fallacy yep. and he wants to keep going even though his, his quest is an obvious failure because otherwise his friends will have died for nothing. And yeah, I'm, uh, the ensorcelling possibility is intriguing in some respects uh, given the Dornish penchant for working in that kind of realm. I don't know. I think there would feel like there would be some evidence of it in Egan's behavior afterwards, and I don't really feel like there was. Uh, and the Faceless Men, as we've gotten into before, this is kind of one of the elements where they don't really work in terms of world building because, like, yeah, why weren't they heavily involved in all these disputes? Right. And, like, in the Dance of the Dragons and the Black Fire Rebellion, and why weren't people constantly engaging the Faceless Men to, to kill their rivals? They seem like an obvious choice. I mean, obviously, they put the fig leaf on it, you have to pay a lot, but you'd think any cause would be willing to fork out what you needed if it meant getting, uh, you know, Anus or Damon Blackfire or Rhaenyra right. off the field. Uh, so, I mean, there, there, there's, like, I would say that the Faceless Men theory has a little more credence. Like, if you read the Jaehaerys section from Fire and Blood, when Jaehaerys is negotiating with the Prince, or rather when Septon Barth is negotiating with the Prince of Pentos, and, you know, not the Prince of Pentos, excuse me, the Sea Lord of Bravos, and the Sea Lord of Bravos tells... Septon Barth, like, yeah, sure, you can torch this fucking city, but we have the Faceless Men. You can kill a whole lot of my people, but we can kill a very select few people that are most valuable and important to someone like Jaehaerys I. And for those of you who have not read Fire and Blood Volume 1, I won't reveal why that conflict is in vogue there, because it's a really interesting thing, which has some ramifications for the main series. Don't get me Say wrong. What? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I still feel like that Faceless Men theory is just kind of... It's basically, it's basically intertextual tinfoil, in my opinion. Yeah, right? yeah. Well put, sir. Agreed. Thank you so much, uh, Sir Clint, for the question. We'll come down on the, none of the above in terms of the theories presented yes. in Fire and Blood itself, but they're all interesting, and it's clearly Merton kind of trying to deliberately muddy the waters and get you to think about the veracity of each. So it's yeah, it's a great little mystery that uh, I look forward to reading more about, maybe as the. Fire and Blood expands, or maybe it'll become relevant in the main series. Absolutely. So this episode, we are back with Jon Snow, man. We haven't been with Jon Snow in freaking months, dude. 
It's been quite a while. We, we we are finally back at the wall for John's fifth chapter. You know, you have Catelyn doing her seventh chapter. We're kind of come up to Eddard's eleventh chapter, Tyrion's seventh chapter as well. Here, we're only on John's fifth chapter in this entire book as the kind of Azor Ahai hero figure in Song of Ice and Fire. But it's a good chapter all the same. George wants us to check in with the wall, and here is the synopsis of Game of Thrones, John Five. Graduation day for the new recruits for the Night's Watch is fast approaching. Vitamin C, graduation, friends forever, as we gather, is playing (laughs) faintly in the background, and Sir Alistair Thorne is berating the new recruits as hopeless idiots who will all die when winter arrives. But he has to graduate them because of the no Night's Watchmen left behind act of 297 AC. Shit. Dude, am I mixing up, like, my own graduation from this high school where I was basically, like, graduated because, you know, I had to be graduated? I think you're projecting slightly, buddy, but that's okay. We all do it. We have to. We have to kind of project ourselves in the sound book. Anyways, Sir Alistair calls out the boys one by one about who will graduate, but not by their names, of course, because Sir Alistair is, is too much of a dick for that. He uses the epithets he granted them during their time in his very, very tender care. Toad, Stonehead, Arax, Lover, Pimple, Monkey, Sir Loon, and the Bastard. The Bastard? Yes, Sir Alistair is graduating Jon Snow. Crazy that. Pip whoops about, but Alistair stares at him. They will call you men of the Night's Watch now, but you are bigger fools than the mummer's monkey here if you believe that. You are boys still, green and stinking of summer, and when the winter comes, you will die like flies. Shit, lovely stuff, right? Sir Alistair, everybody, mm-hmm. give him a little round of applause. Yeah, go boy. But the boys are not about to let Sir Alistair's very, very cheery mood get in the way of their celebration. They dance about, clapping each other on the back and doing man stuff. All except one person, Samuel Tarley. His name was not among those called. John walks over to Sam and offers him a swallow of wine, but Sam demurs. When John asks if Sam is all right, you know, the boy kind of lies about being happy for everyone. Besides, John will be first ranger someday, just like Benjamin was. Is, John corrects Sam. He still refuses to believe that Benjamin Stark is dead. More frolics ensue, but as they taper off, John notices that Sam has gone away. But hey, let's not let Sour Sam get in the way of a good celebration, right boys? Yeah. A Lord's Commander's Feast is prepared for them, and all the boys, save for Samuel of course, eat rack of lamb baked in a crust of garlic and herbs, garnished with sprigs of mint and surrounded by mashed yellow turnips swimming in butter, salads of spinach and chickpeas and turnip greens and bowls of iced blueberries and sweet cream. I was waiting to see when George would get around to more food porn, and man, our good boy George does not let us down. Not one bit. Pip wonders if they're going to be kept together, but alas, probably not. They all want different things, as in terms of different jobs in the Night's Watch. Gren wants to be a ranger, Halder wants to be a builder, and John. John is definitely going to be a ranger, everyone. He's the best sword, Darian the Singing Penis says. And besides, Benjen was first ranger. Benjen Stark is still first ranger, John corrects yet again. You see, John had given up hope that Benjen was still alive. Same, John. Really same for all of us, I think. But the talk of Benjamin and Sam's non-appearance dampened John's appetite. He pushes away from the table. And when Pip asks what's wrong, John tells him that Sam wasn't there. That is strange, Pip says. Sam would never miss a meal. But John corrects him immediately. John, John does a lot of correcting in this chapter. It's, it's good, but it, John is <laughs> a lot, doing a whole lot of correcting in this chapter. John says, he's frightened, relieving him. Once we say our words, we'll all have duties to attend to. Some of us may be sent away to Eastwatch or the Shadow Tower. 
Sam will remain in training with the likes of Rast and Cudger, and these new boys who are coming up the King's Road. Gods only know what they'll be like, but you can bet Sir Alistair will send them against him first chance he gets. When Pip tries to reassure John that they did everything they could, John reports that it wasn't enough. He departs the hall, all melancholy and bastard-like the way that Jon Snow likes to do, heads outside a restlessness because, of course, he's Jon Snow, falling over him. He mounts his horse and rides from Castle Black with no real destination in mind. He only wanted to ride. Ghost follows after. As he rides, he thinks about all the destinations the King's Road, built by Jaehaerys I, listen to our Patreon episodes, you bastards, on him, could take him. Winterfell, River Run, Casterly Rock, the Isle of Faces, Bravos, even the ruins of Old Valyria. I mean, I guess the King's Road probably couldn't take it to Bravos or the ruins of Old Valyria, but you know, it's kind of metaphorical. We'll just go with it. These are all places that John will never see or will never see again. Right. John thinks about his vows and how, if he swears them, he'll stay at the wall until he was as old as Maester Aemon. But he hasn't sworn his vows yet. And because he's not a criminal, he can kind of stay or go as freely as he wants without any penalty from the law. He could go back to Winterfell if he really wants to, but what would await him in Winterfell? Lady Catelyn would be there. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, Lady Catelyn would be there, of course, and she wouldn't welcome him back. Even Lyanna, his mother, I mean, well, wait a minute, I mean, his totally unknown mom, who was of no consequence, didn't have a place for him. She was a sex worker, an adulteress. His quote-unquote father, Ned, had been so ashamed of his mother that he had never spoken of her. John looks back at the fires burning at Castle Black and turns his horse around and heads home. As John enters the stable yard and sees the Lord Commander and Maester Aemon's chambers, he thinks about Samo, and he finally decides he knows what he has to do. He dismounts and stables his horse and mounts the stairs towards Aemon's chambers. John knew that Aemon had two stewards to assist the Maester in his duties, Clytus and Chet, and they were renowned as the ugliest dudes in the Night's Watch. John knocks on the door and Chet answers. When John tells him that he needs to speak with Aemon, Chet tells him to go away and come back in the morning. He tries to shut the door on John's face, but John sticks his boot in and keeps the door open. He needs to speak with Aemon now. Chet protests that Aemon isn't used to late-night visitors. Don't you know how old he is, by the way, John? Yeah, bro, John does know how old Aemon is, and he know, and he's old enough to know to treat visitors with more courtesy than Chet does. John doesn't want to disturb his breast, but he really, really needs to talk with Aemon, and he'll stand out here all goddamn night if Chet doesn't let him right the fuck in. Finally, finally, Chet relents, letting John in and then ordering the bastard to start a fire so that Amon doesn't catch cold while he goes to fetch him. Amon arrives in his bedclothes and his maester's chains still encircled around his neck. You see, maesters didn't even remove their chains when they slept. Very cool detail and world building on George's part. He takes his seat by the fire and John apologizes for waking the man. You do not wake me, John. I find I need less sleep as I grow older and I am grown very old. I often spend half the night with ghosts, remembering times 50 years in the past, as if they were yesterday. He asks why John's here, and John gets blunt, to ask that Samuel Tarly be taken from training and accepted as a brother of the Night's Watch. Chet brushes John's statement off as no business of Amon's, and the old maester more gently tells John that, really, you know, Chet's kind of right. That's the domain of Sir Alistair Thorne, not him. But John won't accept defeat. The Lord Commander listens to you, and the wounded and the sick are in your charge. Well, Eamon asks, is Sam wounded? No. Is he sick? Not yet, but he will be unless Eamon intervenes. John then proceeds to give a plot summary of Game of Thrones' John 4, ending with his warning that Sam stands no chance without his friends. Hell, even Arya could kick his ass. 
Chet very helpfully puts in that Sam is, a, is fat and a coward. Eamon says, yeah, okay, maybe, but what would you do, Chet? Why, Chet will leave him to be trained until he's ready, no matter how many years it takes. You'll let him live or die. That's stupid, John says correctly. He then changes tact and goes for story time. I remember once I asked Maester Lewin why he wore a chain around his throat. He told me that a maester's collar is made of chain to remind him that he is sworn to serve. A chain needs all sorts of metals, and a land needs all sorts of people. The Night's Watch needs all sorts, too. Why else have rangers and stewards and builders? Lord Randall Tarley couldn't make Samuel a warrior, and Sir Alistair won't either. You can't hammer tin into iron, no matter how hard you beat it. But that doesn't mean tin is useless. Why shouldn't Sam be a steward? Chet scowls and then accuses John of thinking that stewards work is cowards work. He then lists off the different things that stewards do. They hunt, they farm, they tend horses, they milk cows, they gather firewood, they cook meals, make clothes, and they are involved in logistics and bringing supplies up from the south. Eamon pipes in to ask whether Sam could do any of these tasks. Nah, Sam really can. But he can do one thing better than anyone else. He could help you, Maester Eamon. He could do sums. He knows how to read and write. Sam's even read every book in Randall Tarley's library. He'd be good in the rookery, too, tending to ravens. Animals love Sam. Don't just train the boy to death. Make use of him, John urges. Amon closes his eyes, thinking, and then compliments Lewin on teaching John well. John's a bright boy and a good swordsman. When John asks if this means, Amon cuts him off. It means I shall think on what you have said. Eamon orders Chet to escort his brother John to the door, and now Eamon is ready for night-night. And that is Game of Thrones John 5, a chapter which, I mean, I don't know how to put this. It's not a really a big action chapter, as a lot of John's chapters become towards the end of a Game of Thrones into Clash, Storm, and A Dance with Dragons, but it's super big, important character work for John to be the guy who kind of goes above and beyond as he mixes paces towards becoming the hero to archetype of the story. What do you think, man? I feel the same way. As with the most recent Bran and Daenerys chapters, there is a palpable sense that the focus in the middle third of A Game of Thrones is on King's Landing and the Vale, and accordingly, chapters elsewhere are more checking in than anything else. But, as you said, John 5 is still a critical step for his arc. It effectively ramps up the stakes from his previous chapters. We've gone from John being nudged out of his naivete by Tyrion, to him being forced to reckon with his privilege by Donald Noy, to him acting on his values by protecting Sam. But now, rather than play the lone wolf or the rebellious leader of the pack, he has to work within institutions to keep Sam safe. He's being offered a place in the Night's Watch, and his first move is to try to change how the Night's Watch operates, or force it to live up to its stated values, at least. And as you've said on a couple recent John chapters, I think you can really see the groundwork being laid here for Jon Snow as Lord Commander. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much... In keeping with John, I mean, I said he's kind of going above and beyond. He really is. And these are all qualities of leadership that are going to be vital for John as he assumes the Lord Commandership at the end of A Storm of Swords and on to A Dance with Dragons. And to be fair, though, going above and beyond, George, especially A Dance with Dragons, he doesn't just paint John being the uber hero as this kind of simply this this thing where he's making every single right decision here. Because in A Dance of Dragons, he makes a couple above and beyond decisions as the Lord Commander that are not so farsighted. Things like sending the ships up to Hardhome. Things like, uh, um, well, I mean, we could talk about the Mance Raider stuff at, at another point. I'm sure we'll have lots of lots to say about that come A Dance of Dragons. But the big one is the Hardhome mission, which is extraordinarily noble on John's part, extraordinarily above and beyond. 
But it's also extraordinarily foolish, too, and it ends up endangering all these people. And as Melisandre tells John, you know, all those men are going to die on the voyage. Like, you've basically sentenced all these people to death. So you're not actually accomplishing anything. But good, noble intentions on your part, John. Good job, dude. Yeah, it's that conflict between your big picture duty and the kind of demands of your individual human heart that John runs into over and over again. Egret in a more romantic sense, whether to join the wildlings in a more kind of identity sense, and then, as you say, hard home in a more kind of logistic military sense. And here he has to he has to kind of resolve how he feels about the Night's Watch itself, because on the surface, this should be a great moment for John. That the moment he graduates, he's getting free of Sir Alistair. <laughs> Uh, he's he's being given his black cloak. He's being given what he came here to accomplish, but he's not happy about it because it, it doesn't mean anything without Sam being among those eight named. He feels that it's he's abandoning Sam just like he lost his family, and that's that kind of brings these heavy, intense emo feelings to, to the surface. <laughs> emo feelings for John? I know, right? He's in no way Rhaegar Targaryen's no. son in this chapter. Like when you were describing him looking back at the fires of Castle Black and you could just see the wind <laughs> stirring his hair... It's like, yep, there's the son of the guy who sang at Hall right there. Yes. All over this chapter, for sure. But yeah, I mean, right away in the opening of this chapter, of course, we get Alistair Thorne as the eternal asshole that he is. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing how hard he's working to undercut any pride or satisfaction right. that the recruits might feel here. Like, he's proclaiming them unworthy. He's disparaging the new recruits. Like, one or two might even be worth the price of piss. He disavows any choice in the matter. Like, that's a big one. He doesn't, like, give them the support of saying, I have affirmed this. I think you're think you're ready. Yeah. I can validate your growth. He says, this is not my decision. Lord Commander's making me do this. My hands are tied, he says. He, he keeps up there insulting nicknames. Right. Like, even now, after any utility is gone, he offers no encouragement, predicting instead they'll die like flies. Like, you were talking about this as a high school graduation. And I'm just picturing, like, Green Day's time of your life over, like, a slow-motion <laughs> montage of pictures while Sir Alistair is saying, you're all going to die, you're going to die, and you, and you, and especially you. I mean, obviously, look, I wasn't, I'm not in the military, I'm a, you know, I'm a skinny child with a slim, elegant wrist. <laughs> but even I can tell that Alistair Thorne is not a pragmatist who is preparing these boys for hard realities. He's a prick, sabotaging the Night's Watch out of resentment that he's there. Because, like... As I understand it, you know, if, if a drill sergeant acts remotely like this, it's in part to, you know, toughen the lads up, but also to give them a common antagonist so they bond in their hatred of you. Exactly. So they can kind of, like, oh, isn't this miserable? We have to do this for this asshole. Yeah, it is. You get some trench camaraderie in that way, a taste of it. But my understanding, again, is once that process of molding you into a unit is over, then the relationship changes. You're Marines, not maggots now. Right. I mean, it's still the hierarchy, but Alistair is acting like, that's just going to be their relationship forever. Yeah, it, it's it's so detrimental to the Night's Watch, to the mission of the Night's Watch, but also to these people who are coming into various professions the Night's Watch. You know, having some experience with actual drill sergeants and drill instructors in, in my military career, the, the idea is to kind of like break down your individual identity like in the first few weeks at at basic training so that you stop thinking about you as an individual and you start thinking about the greater holes as team and as a team. So you could see like the nicknames, the kind of cruel nicknames that Alistair assigns to them. You could kind of see like the kind of the full metal jacket type thing. But what was actually being done, there's, it's, it seems extremely cruel and there is an element of cruelty that, which doesn't actually exist in, in kind of my own experiences, but that, that element of cruelty is, is designed to break down that individual identity so that you start to fuse and focus as, as yourself as a team. 
what Alistair is doing here is that he's saying that they're the same exact they're the, they're the recruit status that they were at when they first came to Castle Black, that they're not actual Night's Watchmen. And I think you're absolutely spot on when you say that he's doing it because he's really pissed off that he is at Castle Black because he once had served Aerys Targaryen in King's Landing, and now he has been forced to take the Black by, by, by Tywin Lannister. And you do get some sense of that, and I don't mean to spoil too much of Fire and Blood for those of you who haven't read it, but there is an interesting storyline from Fire and Blood in the Reign of Jaehaerys Targaryen where you have these... I don't know, rebels, loyalists to a certain contender for the Iron Throne, perhaps a certain former claimant to the Iron Throne, a person who sat the Iron Throne, who are all sent to the wall by Jaehaerys, and they stir up all sorts of trouble for the Night's Watch, and they end up leading a rebellion that the Starks have to put down and, and stuff like that. Alistair is a much less malignant factor than those folks from Fire and Blood, but it still is a malignant factor that he still sees these kids as essential just just chop me. I mean, he's looking at them, he's saying, you're just going to die. Like, well, they're just gonna, if, if they're going to die, it's your fucking fault because you were supposed to train them to be the best goddamn soldiers who are going to be fighting against the potential of a 100,000-man wildling horde. And even beyond that, the original mission of the Night's Watch, which is to prevent the apocalypse from coming south of the wall. Yeah, it's something we've discussed in previous John chapters that Sir Alistair is not only an asshole personally, but functionally, structurally bad at his job. Yes. In a way that, as Tyrion points out, is kind of a condemnation of the Night's Watch as a whole. But in the context of this chapter, it specifically works to remind us that he is indeed a genuine threat to Sam's life when John and the others graduate because his practices are dangerous and he doesn't care. So th that establishes the consequences if John fails here. Sam really is in trouble, and we're reminded of that just by how abrasive Alistair behaves. Yeah, he's, he's very mean, he's very cruel, he just says they're going to die like flies, that... I mean, this is the attitude of someone who doesn't give a shit about the people that he's with. You know, John and his boys have to, like, kind of enjoy this moment, even... And, and of course, they enjoy the moment as soon as Alistair walks away, but they still get a chance to enjoy the moment, everyone except for one sad boy from the Reach. Exactly. There's It's a nice little happy moment, a rare happy moment of community and, and friendship in A Song of Ice and Fire among these boys who are so happy about moving on up. Even uh, Daron, who we later come to hate, uh, is, is, is in on the fun. It's great, except for, yeah, there's Sam literally standing by a bare dead tree in case this wasn't already like a panel from Charlie Brown. Like, I like one of my favorite little details in Peanuts is how Charlie Brown is drawn with the big bags around his eyes, just little big semicircles mm -hmm. whenever he's particularly depressed. And he's drawn just slightly slouching all the time. Like, that's Sam right here in this chapter. He's the wonderful little detail is he's Sam is so clearly screwed and knows it that Martin actually kind of breaks his usual POV structure here when huh. he writes that Sam is lying when it's the John asks him if he's well and it's a very well truly the fat boy lied. Martin doesn't usually do that when he like will confirm that a character who's not the POV is lying yeah. because how would how would John technically know if Sam is lying because Sam's not the POV. So it's it kind of just emphasizes how clear it is that Sam is lying and how obviously screwed he is, that it's just he's barely keeping it together, which is just Sam's usual MO in dialogue scenes, of course. He's always just barely keeping it together. <laughs> it's good. I mean, I think you can probably assume that John can tell, like, Sam is so not hiding his emotions that John's like, oh, you're obviously lying sort of thing. But I like that, that George doesn't be like, and John knew that Sam was lying when he said that sort of thing. It just makes it much more exactly. punchy. But also it, it kind of reaffirms the emotions that, that Sam is feeling in that moment. The, the bond you were talking about earlier, that is the goal to forge out of this military unit, the sense of we as even coming to supersede the sense of I. It's ironic that despite Sir Alistair's attempts to isolate Sam, John has forged that bond yes. with Sam. 
in a way that Alistair Thorne never expected or even tried to create. He has created this brotherly bond that is the heart of the Night's Watch, despite the fact that neither of them have actually taken the black yet, and that Sam hasn't been offered the opportunity. It's that classic romantic switcheroo that Martin does where the truest members of an institution are the ones who aren't allowed into that institution. Yes. Brienne is the truest knight, Davos is the truest lord, and you get this kind of beautiful example of Night's Watch Brotherhood. Donald Noy's line about the, the tastier victories, about how, you know, John, do you like the tastier victories once you realize that you're beating up peasants? That comes back here because his triumph is turning to ashes in his mouth. This is, again, this is a hero's journey beat for him, but it's, it doesn't have meaning if, if mm. Sam is excluded, if Sam is endangered. And I mean the tasting part literally. There's this motif of food and drink in this chapter linked to John's disappointment. Mm. When they get the news, they bring out this congratulatory skin of wine, and they're passing it around. Remember from John's first chapter in this yeah. book that he was getting drunk, and that was linked to his adulthood. But Sam, ah, Sam doesn't drink. He doesn't take the sip. And by the time John extricates himself from that whole drinking scenario, Sam is gone. And then later on, as you were saying, uh, Martin goes food porn with this delicious meal of lamb and blueberries. But it's—and it's, I think Martin's food porn is usually this way. It has a point yes. where— it's set up as this delicious meal that's much better than the usual plain fare you get at Castle Black. But John can hardly taste it because he's so worried about Sam, and he's so ashamed that all we could do wasn't enough, as you were saying, he says to Pip. So that's the literal taste of your victories right there, John. And he can't taste it because what's come to mean something more to him is not just getting the black, not just being the romantic hero that he thought about at the beginning of the book. He cares about really what the Night's Watch say you're supposed to care about, about protecting people, about defending the weak and being the sword in the darkness. John has kind of already organically come to that worldview on his own, which is great. No, it's it, John is advancing beyond the stories of his youth. The Darren the First, the young dragon, these kind of heroic figures that he grew up idolizing. He's becoming a real hero here. And I mean, like, you, you can make fun of this as like, ah, this isn't actually heroism, him sticking up for Samuel Tarley. But John does a number of brave things in this chapter, which emphasizes that he's not just this the fairy tale hero. He's not just a Zora High holding a burning sword athwart the others coming at you. He's also the guy that's going to stand up for the weak, for the innocent, for those who can't defend themselves. And it's extraordinarily well written by George that it makes us both like John a whole lot more, because I mean, part of this, the emphasis in this chapter is that we get more of John's hero's arc and the advancement of a storyline. Like, it just wasn't that long ago that John was the dude who was beating the shit out of all the people in the Castle Black Courtyard, and he thought that he was better than them, and he had all this noble privilege he was bringing along with him that he didn't even realize. But now he's the guy that's kind of seen past his own upbringing and past his own privilege and nobility, and he's defending someone that no one else would defend. Like, for one, Sam is incredibly lucky that he arrived at Castle Black at the time that he did. I mean... Yeah, great point. If he had arrived at the next recruiting rotation, then John would have already been potentially a ranger or potentially the Lord Commander Stewart. I always think that the Lord he was always being groomed to be that way, but maybe we can talk about the next John chapter because that's going to be a big facet of that chapter itself. Yeah, agreed. Like, you have to imagine in the songs John listened to, there were characters like Samuel Tarley, and they did play roles, but the songs skipped over this part. Right. The part where you got to actually do the hard institutional work of saving Sam's life. This is the part that's not there, where you have to think about policy, and you have to think about institutions, yes. and you have to have, find a way to make your values work within those. I mean, in part, John is learning not just a personal emotional lesson, but a, a good military lesson that if you don't leave a man behind, if you're part mm -hmm. of this band of brothers and you, you're only as fast as the slowest among you and you have to make use of everyone, as, as we'll get into later in the chapter, you, you have to kill the boy and let the Lord Commander be born hmm. in this case. And 
Just to emphasize that Sam really is now John's brother, Martin repeatedly links John's concern for Sam in this chapter to his longing for his family. There's this great little passage when John says that Sam is afraid because they are leaving him, they're abandoning him. He says, He remembered the day he left Winterfell, all the bittersweet farewells. Bran lying broken, Rob with snow in his hair. That image Martin comes back to over and over again with Rob with the snow melting in his hair. <laughs> all his siblings think about that. Arya raining kisses on him after he'd given her needle. So his, he's making that emotional connection with his, his longing for families. He almost runs back home in this chapter. He's linking that to Sam's feeling of isolation. So Sam is his, his family in that, that kind of equation, that he's, he's bringing Sam within that circle. And everyone, as you said, keeps bringing up Benjen and how he's probably dead, which is not only there to just remind us about Benjen Stark and keep, <laughs> us, keep him in the back of our brains, but it, it's spurring John to make sure he doesn't lose Sam too. Like he's already worried about losing one family member, uh, one brother in black and, and more than that. And he's, he's worried that Sam is going to be another person that, that falls behind. He just can't bear that. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at it, John and Sam have a lot more in common than can be expected when you when you look at these two characters. I mean, John is handsome; he's a good swordsman; he's popular; he's you know he's he's everything that you would want your kind of fantasy hero to be. But he's also an outcast. He's also kind of separated out from his family. He was always the person who was standing apart from all of his half brothers, or actually cousins, but all his half brothers and half sisters in his own imagination. Samo is kind of similar in that he always stood apart from Dickon Tarly, the, his his younger brother by by his by his father Randall, and Randall always kind of looked at him askance because he was not the warrior that he wanted his son to be. So they do have that commonality there of being outcasts, but that unity is linked through the Night's Watch, a Night's Watch that has people like criminals in it, but also has outcast sons of noble houses like Samuel Tarly, as well as bastards like Jon Snow. Who can rise? Who can you know? As Benjamin talked about back in John One, who a bastard can rise high in the Night's Watch. Not only can he rise high, but he could also rise to his full potential as a character and as a hero. And I think that's extraordinarily important that it's emphasized here in this chapter that John is more than just the noble hero. He is an everyday hero. Yeah, that he's very grounded, and we get that nice little atmospheric interlude where John goes riding and considers taking off down the King's Road, and he's describing the King's Road as very kind of unremarkable, just like kind of rotted and, and ruddy, but but all of the wonders of the world are down that path. And it's the bones of John's arc are so solid. You can see Martin really kind of building his character to exactly where he's going to need him to be at every step of the way. Like, unlike in John 3, he no longer hates life at Castle Black. He's no longer describing it as too cold, and he hates everybody. That's changed. He doesn't hate the people he shares it with anymore. They're his friends, they're his brothers, but he still feels that call of adventure and exploration mm-hmm. that in part brought him to the wall in the first place. And this is such a good bridge from that earlier disillusionment about the Night's Watch that Donald Noy kind of snapped him out of to his temptation to leave after Ned's downfall and death, mm-hmm. which will be the kind of climax of his storyline in this book. So there's you can really see Martin carefully plotting out Jon's character uh, in, in A Game of Thrones. And Certainly, as we you know, we made fun of throughout, there are moments that feel a little emo or a little forced in their <laughs> writing, but I think the structure of his storyline in this book, I think, is just rock solid. It is, and it's always fascinating to me, too, that in this chapter, John is the one who is pulling Sam along with himself into the Night's Watch, and at the end of A Game of Thrones and John's final chapter, it's all those guys that John helped pull into the Night's Watch that pulled him back into the, into the Night's Watch as opposed to having him be a deserter and to potentially join Rob Stark, which, of course, probably would not have worked out the way he wanted it to work out. But still, it's, it's just a nice paralleling that George does of showing us that John's actions in 
creating a real band of brothers in these early chapters in a Game of Thrones, in these kind of mid-chapters really at this point, they're really, they have dovetailing and they bear fruit later on in the story and that these are the guys that prevent John from making a truly boneheaded decision. And that's because John has put the hard work in to make these people feel like a unit, like all a part of a family and a community. And that's great on John's part. And it's something that carries with him throughout the rest of his arc, whether it's with the wildlings and integrating the wildlings character like Tormund Giantsbane and his, and his wildlings in A Dance of Dragons. But that's the real stuff that matters, the stuff that matters that saves innocent lives. And, you know, in this chapter, John is saving the innocent life of Samuel Tarley because I, I don't imagine a scenario where Samuel Tarley makes it out of his training alive or at least mentally sane at the end of years, potentially, of, of training at the, at, the, at the hands of Sir Alistair Thorne and the other Night's Watchmen that are in training with him. Very true. And yeah, I love what you said there, that John is not only saved by his friends, he's saved by his friends because of what they learned from him and what he taught them and the best selves that he kind of brought forth. Then those best selves are deployed to make him live up to his best self. Exactly. Great vision of how friendship works. Yes. Because that's true. It's not not friendship isn't everyone being 100% with each other all the time. It's people being up and low and people kind of sharing the load and getting along with each other. And it's also just a, a great expression as... L.C. Mormont says of how the Night's Watch should work when he says, you know, honor brought you back. And John says, I ran off. My friends brought me back. And Mormont says, I didn't say it was your honor, <laughs> uh, which is, is a wonderful expression of, again, that community we're talking about. I think it's also worth noting uh, which specific exotic lands John is longing to visit in this little yes. part of the chapter. He's looking to visit the Red Mountains of Dorne. Interesting. Mm -hmm. his, his actual birthplace. He's looking to visit the Isle of Faces, which is where Rhaegar and Lyanna may well have wed. It's certainly a location with significance to the R plus L equals J story, given what we learn in the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter in The Storm of Swords, in which Helen revisits the Isle of Faces before going to the tourney at Harrenhal. John also wants to visit the smoking ruins of Old Valyria, which, that's an interestingly ambitious <laughs> move there, John. First of all, I like to say, especially after Fire and Blood Volume oh 1. Oh my god. Interesting that John thinks he can just waltz into Valyria. He might not be wrong. But that's just, that, that's interesting. But, you know, of course, that is where his ancestors on his father's side come from, which we know as, as, as rereaders, but he does not. So he has, he has all these homes to run to, not just Winterfell. He's thinking of all these places he could go, all these places he could belong. Like, again, this is like his Disney princess I want song. Like, he's, he's <laughs> Belle and Beauty and the Beast going, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. It's beautiful, but, man. Well, thank you. I try. Uh, ultimately, though, of course, he stays. He turns back to Castle Black, and he's he's reaffirming Sam as his truest brother now. As he's said before, and we'll say later in the book, that he still loves Rob and Arya and Bran, but this this is his family now. Yeah, it is his family. And I think that's really cool. Like, I think it's a fantastic catch on your part about all the places that John imagines that he can visit being representative of the different homes, the different kind of stations in John's life, and the different kind of origin story background material that is essential for John Stanley as he's going to find come hopefully the Winds of Winter at some point. But, you know, all of that is all building towards John intervening to save Sam's life ultimately, but also bringing Sam into that brotherhood. But first, he has an obstacle. He has to actually convince the leadership of the Night's Watch that Samuel Tarly belongs, that he doesn't have to train forever. Yes, and for that, of course, he has to go to Maester Eamon, and this is really at the heart of John 5, is John's conversation with Maester Eamon. I like, again, a little background thing we know as a rereader that John is thinking about, hey, he has no place, he has no family, nowhere to go, but 
the person he ends up talking to is his family member. He doesn't know it, but he's in, he's talking to his fellow Targaryen, interesting, his actual relative. So that's that's just that's awesome. That's, like in the like in the show, when Maester Eamon talks about you, Targaryen alone is a dangerous thing, and then boop, Jon Snow walks in the room. <laughs> As with Jon's temptation to leave, this is kind of an important story bridge in terms of it as a beat for Maester Aemon. He was given this nice little introduction in Tyrion 3 when he called Tyrion a giant and even Tyrion was at a loss for words. But uh, we really haven't had much else to go on as, on Aemon as a character and we need to establish him in order for the reveal in John 8 that he's a secret Targ to land with any impact. So we, we really do need this kind of nice little scene with him to establish him as as a character we like and as a, that you were saying that John has to go to the leadership of the Night's Watch, we have to understand why he picked Aemon. Yes. And in part he picked Aemon, as we'll get into a little later, because Aemon is a maester and John has this great metaphor picked out and because Sam is the person that will work with Aemon, but also because he knows Aemon is this friendly, merciful, very personal man who will listen to him in a way that someone like, not only someone like Cheddar Alistair Thorne, but someone like even J.R. Mormont might not listen to him about. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. You you think it's uh, that John had this I this whole line kind of picked out about the Maester's chain and stuff like that. I think that we're, that's evidence of John being more improv- improvisational in terms of seeing like All Maester right. Eamon's chain because that becomes like a prominent feature where he's like, oh, ma- he's he's in his bed clothes, but he still has his chain on, and then he flashes back to his memory. Probably that was something that Lewin had told him about. Maesters never take off their chain because the chain is representative of their service to the realm and the different kind of disciplines that maesters study. And I think that's, for me, it feels very improvisational on John's part that he is utilizing something he's able to see and utilize that in his argument towards towards Maester Eamon. No, that's a very good point. It does, uh, John does really know his audience in this scene when he's talking about Lewin and the importance of a good education. He's kind of flattering the Maester as a concept in his, his little speech there, <laughs> which definitely shows he knows how to work Eamon. Yes. Uh, and that, that, that is that is a nice little bit of politicking on John's part. But yeah, like I say, we're also getting to learn about Eamon as a character. When he comes in to talk to John and John apologizes for waking him up, Eamon, as you said, says he wasn't sleeping, that he spends his nights with ghosts. And of course, we will see much more of that with Eamon, not only when he talks to John later in this book about having to live with his decision not to ride off to King's Landing after the Targaryens had their little downfall, but also very emotionally we see this via Sam in A Feast for Crows when they're on the deck of the boat and Eamon's like falling asleep and then says to Sam, Egg, Egg, is that you? I dreamt I was old, which is just one of the most heartbreaking moments in the, in the whole series. No, it really is. Now, he's not just old and senile because I think... That could have been a danger that Martin could have had him being this kind of daughterly oh, sure. dude that John can kind of manipulate very easily. But it's clear as John is speaking with Amon that he is in full control of his senses and has a full, strong intellect going on here. I love the vision of Amon lying there in his bed every night thinking and conversing with his ghosts from his past because the dude has been alive for a long, long time and he's seen so many different things. And when that backstory is revealed in John 8, it really kind of fleshes this little portion of John 5 into into something that's that's a bit more because we can imagine Amon thinking about a character like Aeg, thinking about his father, Makar, thinking about his past and John stumbles in as Aemon is thinking about his past. I think that's cool, too. You have a Targaryen, a secret Targaryen character stumbling into Maester Aemon as he's thinking about his past, most likely his Targaryen siblings and relatives. And now a Targaryen relative stumbles into Aemon's chambers in the middle of the night. 
Exactly. Eamon is thinking to himself, oh, whoa, the downfall of my family. The Targaryen son has said, oh, hello, John. How are you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is great. And it's also, of course, very similar to Bloodraven, another Targaryen who tells Bran, I live with my ghosts, the, the brother I love, the brother I hated, the sister I desired. They're, they are always with me, too. So yes. it is the sense that the, the older Targaryens are kind of stuck with their ghosts and the younger Targaryens are kind of struggling struggling for their future. So John, of course, is here to try to get Maester Aemon to bump up Sam to the graduating class of the Night's Watch. And he is appealing to Aemon on two grounds. He's appealing in terms of institutional authority, saying that, yes, this is technically Alistair Thorne's decision and Mormont has to sign off, but Mormont listens to you. So he's understanding that Aemon is useful as an advisor and going at things through an advisory position is valuable and you don't always have to go straight up the decision-making ladder. Sometimes you can see, okay, but who do they talk to? Who does right. the person in command talk to? Who are they going to talk to when I leave the room? And how can I influence that person? You can see kind of John starting to work on that level. But he's also appealing in a very emotional sense, in terms of mercy. He says, the wounded and the sick of the Night's Watch are in your charge. And Sam will be wounded or sick unless you help. So it's, it's both institutional and personal, and they're intertwined. Eamon's institutional duty is in part about mercy. That's what maesters are supposed to do, is to give mercy. And John is arguing that kind of the overall mission of the Night's Watch demands this as well, that if, for the Night's Watch to serve at its highest capacity and fulfill its values and goals, you have to make room for someone like Sam, and this is, of course, really the seed of the argument he'll make later regarding the wildlings. Exactly. Amon carries a lot of weight. It's not just that he's old. It's also that he is a valuable and extraordinarily useful maester in the Night's Watch. And I mean, I think that that needs to be emphasized is that Maester Amon is not just the wise old man. He has real power and real ability in his maestership. I mean, he's the guy that essentially sends all the ravens out to all of the kings and lords of Westeros when the wildlings are coming down. That's no easy feat. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of messages that he has to write or has written for him, but it's his words that are going out to try and influence the lords of Westeros to come and save the Night's Watch and save the wall from coming down. So that institutional argument that John makes is very smart on John's part. But the emotional side is really valuable too, because Amon, we learn, especially in A Feast for Crows, he is very much an emotional guy. I mean, he he lives with his ghosts, he converses with them at some level, and he's the same guy that I was remembering, you know, Egg, and, you know, Egg, I dreamed that I was old. Like, that's the kind of guy that Maester Amon is. So John's ability to read the room, John's ability to influence, not necessarily manipulate, but influence Maester Amon is important groundwork for John's leadership arc as it develops through the first three books in A Song of Ice and Fire and culminates in him being the Lord Commander in A Dance with Dragons. Maester Eamon saves John's life in A Storm of Swords. Yeah. Dano Slint and Alistair Thorne say they would have hanged John as a turned cloak and traitor if not for Maester Eamon interceding on his behalf. And even on just a basic kind of scene breakdown level, Eamon always speaks with this real kind of authority and weight. Yep. Like when he's introduced in Tyrion 3, Martin writes that Aemon was quiet, but he's the sort of person that everyone shushes themselves in order to listen to him speak. And when when Stannis shows up, Aemon's very firm with him and with Melisandre when they're talking about the elections and the prophecy. And he's very respectful, but he, he really gives no ground while everyone else around him is blustering to Stannis <laughs> Melisandre. Aemon is, appears to be the only person in the room that uh, the king and the Red Woman take kind of remotely seriously. Yes. So Aemon has this real kind of legitimacy about him, just how he carries himself, how he talks. And John has to learn from that if he's going to work as a leader. And meanwhile, you have Chet, who's basically arguing Sir Alistair's point, that we're just going to beat him until he's either a man or dead, which is, of course, also Randall Tarley's strategy. Yep. And this allows John to finally respond to it. And he just says, in a manner very much like Arya, that's stupid. <laughs> and it is. 
Yeah, it's not just, and we've said about this before, it's not just cruel, it's also incompetent. It doesn't even have the cold, pragmatic, Taiwan-esque justification. It fails. And John puts puts forward a much better argument. That's my, my very favorite part of the chapter, is this argument rooted in what he learned from Maester Lewin at Winterfell. So it's rooted in the home and family he was just longing for. And it's interesting that Donal Noy was saying in John 3, like, look, you got to forget Winterfell. You need to understand your privilege and how you're using it against people. But now he's he's clearly putting Donal Noy's lesson to work, but he's doing it in a way that draws from what he learned from Winterfell. So he's kind of trying to unite the two. Exactly. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that that whole line, series of lines that John has when he convinces Maester Aemon is extraordinarily smart, but it's also a buildup from what he's learned from his arc so far in A Game of Thrones. But I'll let you read the line because I, I've, I've read, I read an abridged version of it when I did my summary, but there's a whole lot more that I left out in my little summary. Yeah, I'll read it because it's just a really important little moment for Jon's arc. So he says, I remember once I asked Maester Lewin why he wore a chain around his throat. Maester Aemon touched his own collar lightly, his bony wrinkled fingers stroking the heavy metal links. Go on. Like right away, Jon's going to know, oh, I got him. He's feeling the chain. <laughs> he told me that a maester's collar is made of chain to remind him that he is sworn to serve. John said, remembering. I asked why each link was a different metal. A silver chain would look much finer with his gray robes, I said, John the fashion critic. <laughs> Maester Lewin laughed. A maester forges his chain with study, he told me. The different metals are each a different kind of learning. Gold for the study of money and accounts. Silver for healing. Iron for warcraft. And he said there were other meanings as well. The collar is supposed to remind a maester of the realm he serves, isn't that so? Lords are gold and knights steel, but two links can't make a chain. (laughs) You also need silver and iron and lead, tin and copper and bronze and all the rest. And those are farmers and smiths and merchants and the like. A chain needs all sorts of metals, and a land needs all sorts of people. (laughs) And that's just just a great passage. And yeah, it merits some close attention because it's really significant for John's overall arc. First of all, he's asserting that there is, in terms of his overall argument about Sam, that there's more to the Night's Watch than being a fancy ranger. There's more to this job than just swinging a sword and looking cool while doing it, which is ironic because he's briefly going to backslide on this question when we get to John 6, (laughs) and he's named a steward. But he shows that he's learning that lesson, that for this institution to function, you have to make use of everyone's skills, and that's what the idea of the Night's Watch should be. As Dior Moment says, we are all one great house. You know, this, (laughs) this, this idea of a band of brothers only works if we make use of all the brothers properly. Exactly. And it also, again, shows Donald Noy's lesson about society at large. You need everyone. The lords and knights do not make a society. You need farmers and smiths and merchants, and everyone matters. Everyone is part of the chain. Everyone is contributing. Everyone is part of the realm. Again, like John says about the wildlings, what are they if not men? We are sworn to defend the realms of men. That includes them. I think he only Mm -hmm. reaches that conclusion because of the kind of ideas he's saying here, that... Everyone is included in the Maester's chain. Everyone is included in the realm. Everyone is included in what the Night's Watch are defending. So how can we leave out Sam Tarly? If we're here to defend the entire realm, how can we be excluding people with different skills? Yeah, and John then rightly points out that Sam has skill sets that few people in the Night's Watch has. I mean, there's a point that J.R. Mormont makes in Tyrion 3 in which J.R. Mormont says, only one in ten of these of my men can can read, and fewer of them can read and write, and even fewer of them can can lead. You know, these this is this is something that is brought to close attention in in that previous Tyrion chapter. That conversation was done between Tyrion and Gior himself, with Aemon not being present there. But Aemon is not unaware of the difficulties the Night's Watch is facing in terms of that. I mean, again, we're talking about a organization that is essentially fallen very much by the wayside, where once they had manned dozens of castles along the wall, they only have three now, where once they had knights and lords and 
you know, different types of people serving in various different leadership and warrior capacities. Now they have very few people. You have to have people like Samuel there too, who is sending off ravens. Because I mean, what, is, what happens when they're at the Fist of the First Men? Sam is the one who's sending ravens off to warn the wall that the others are here, the others are coming, they're being attacked at the Fist of the First Men. So Sam's service to the Night's Watch is, and the, what John sees in Sam is going to bear itself out numerous times as the story progresses in A Song of Ice and Fire. John is 100% right here, and he's appealing to Eamon's sense of rationality, and he's doing it in, ex- in a really, really good way. Yeah, you bring up the other's attack on the fist of the first men. What John is expressing here is not just a worthy model of leadership in general, it's specifically a vital sentiment in the face of the long night. You really need to adopt this model that we're all in this together, everyone has something to contribute once humanity's up against the zombie apocalypse and the eternal winter that comes with it. And you can see the groundwork being laid for John and Stannis reaching the conclusion in the Storm of Swords that when the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together, and John trying to carry out that mission in a dance with dragons. You know, it's also, I think, just a tribute to the moral and practical worth of a good education. Because as you say, John does not emerge fully formed from the womb just knowing this because he is perfect and the chosen <laughs> one. He was taught this by Maester Lewin. Like as a kid, he didn't get this at first. He was like, why aren't they all silver? That would look better and Maester Lewin had to teach him. And John internalized that lesson and now he is applying it. Like that's, again, that's what the real kind of granular work of being a good person looks like. It's not just being Jon Snow. It's taking it day to day. And John is going to need that as, as Lord Commander. And Eamon knows that. And like I was saying, he knows his audience because when he's talking about the maesters serving the realm and they're all sworn to serve, he's talking about the Night's Watch too. He's trying to draw this comparison between Eamon's order and the order of the Night's Watch. And I'm sure, of course, Eamon has seen that commonality many times before as well. And maybe that's part of what drew him to the Night's Watch in the first place, as well as uh, getting himself out of the succession, of course. We have John noticing that Sam has different talents and, and tasks that he can accomplish in the Night's Watch. Whereas Westeros is based as a society on this, that people are, are obviously better because due to their, their bloodlines. And that's not necessarily bearing itself out in the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch is kind of the exception to what Westeros is. Now, of course, it's not a total exception, as we've talked about in previous John chapters and Tyrion chapters, that there is a bit of a hierarchy in the Night's Watch and that nobility and noble blood gets some kind of privileges that the other folks in the Night's Watch don't necessarily get. But at the same time, you've got someone like Cotter Pike, who is leading one of the castles on the wall. And he's a pretty good Night's Watchman, by all accounts. You know, he's the one that's leading John's hard home mission in A Dance with Dragons. You also have someone like Samuel Tarley, who's not going to necessarily wield a sword really all the well. Although I will note that he is the only person so far confirmed in A Song of Ice and Fire who has killed a motherfucking other. So he's got the, he's got that going for him. So he's not necessarily, he's not even as cowardly as he's put in this chapter. As even John sees Sam as cowardly here, but Sam proves himself out. He's much more brave than he, than he seems, than he even gives himself credit for. But all of those parts work towards the whole in the Night's Watch. Everyone has a purpose and a place, and especially when you have the apocalypse coming. Like, you can't exclude people because they don't necessarily meet a certain criteria. Everyone has a part to play in saving the realms of men from eternal darkness and damnation at the hands of the others. And like you say, Sam turns out to expand beyond his seeming role. He turns out he can be even a martial kind of hero when called upon to do it. So that's another reason that John is right, is because you don't know people perfectly enough to assign them their role and assume you understand what position they're going to play. Everyone turns out to be wrong about Sam. That's the other reason you got to bring everyone on board, is you got to give people room to prosper and grow and show their capacity. That's, I think, an important model of leadership 
leadership that John does not employ perfectly, but I think you can still see it when he like elevates Satin to yes. a squire in A Dance with Dragons. And Eamon is clearly impressed by all this. He, of course, doesn't confirm it immediately. He says he'll have to think <laughs> it over. But he's not only impressed with John's intelligence, complimenting him and Lewin, he, he does this wonderfully subtle thing at the very end of the chapter, as, as John is leaving, where he confirms him as a worthy member of the Night's Watch. He says, Chet, show our young brother to the door. Even though John, technically speaking has not taken the Night's Watch oath. He is not wearing his black cloak, but what he has done here, Eamon thinks, makes him worthy of the title of brother, a true worthy Night's Watchman, and that's just very nice. It's such a huge fuck yeah moment when Eamon calls John a brother, especially on reread, because we know that Eamon is going to back John's play here. And I think Eamon knows at that point that even he says he's going to think about it, I think he's actually, he knows at that point he's going to be the guy that's going to go to Lord Commander Morbon and be like, we need to bring this guy into the Night's Watch. Samuel is definitely a major part of how we can succeed and how we can thrive in the Night's Watch. And the other thing, too, I really like about it is that he is standing up to Thorne's cruelty. You know, he's when we get Alistair Thorne at the beginning of this chapter saying that everyone's going to die like flies and you guys aren't worth the price of piss and stuff like that, Amon is calling John a brother. He's not throwing invective at him and being like, well, you're not quite a Night's Watchman yet. So, I mean, your words and your arguments are, are fine, you know, for being some but not a Night's Watchman yet. No, Amon says you're you're our young brother. Like, you're, you're essentially a part of the Night's Watch right now. You might not have sworn your vows in front of a heart tree, but... By, by any rational explanation and by any rational reason, he is a part of the, the community and that band of brothers that is going to be so pivotal for the next four and a half books we have to get through. Absolutely. And Sam contributes right away. Right after being made Night's Watchman, he starts pointing out, he goes CSI Sam and starts pointing out everything wrong with the zombie yeah. body that they find out beyond the wall that no one else is pointing out. So that pretty much uh, covers the bulk of the chapter itself. Moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, we get one of those classic ironic nudges in the direction of R plus L equals J that Martin likes to drop in, especially in this first book. When John is having his little gloomy emo midnight ride, he's thinking to himself, even his own mother had not had a place for him. The thought of her made him sad. He wondered who she had been, what she had looked like, why his father had left her. (laughs) Because she was a whore or an adulterous fool, something dark and dishonorable, or else why was Lord Eddard too ashamed to speak of her? Oh, kid, <laughs> if you only knew. If you only knew the truth. Ned loved her more than anybody. Yeah. One of the writers from Watching the Wall, I don't actually know her, her real name, but she goes by the real Sansa Stark or something like that on Twitter, had a, what are your your favorite, you know, make your kind of the hair on your arm stand up moments from the show? And immediately, I mean, the, the only two scenes I could think of were John asking, you know, could we talk about my mom? And Ned says, we'll speak about your mother when I return. Mm-hmm. I promise. And, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. yep. I mean, yep. It, it is very much an ironic nudge in it to RLJ in this in this chapter and as we know well know by this point i mean people that don't know are fools and stupid that that Lana is is John's mother and it's it's very touching but it's also kind of sad too that you know John will get well, John will likely get some sort of confirmation of who his mother is in the winds winter or dream spring but i don't necessarily think that it's going to bring him a lot of happiness i think that for all intents and purposes, and I, I know this this point is probably a little bit off topic, but he is still Ned's son in terms of his outlook and in terms of the way that he conducts himself. Oh, sure. But I, I, I think that him finding out that he is actually Rhaegar and Lyanna's son is going to be a very sad moment for John. She's not a whore or an adulteress. She was someone that loved John very much. And Ned loved John and Ned, Ned loved Lyanna so much that he wouldn't even speak of her. I mean, that's the thing, like, too, that's the irony is that Lord Eddard was not too ashamed to speak of her. Lord Eddard didn't speak of her because 
he had to protect John and had to protect his sister's progeny. So yeah, very sad and, and ironic, but very sad too. Yeah, Maester Eamon's not the only one spending all his time with his ghosts, that's for sure. Just as a quick aside, my pick for my like favorite hair-raising moment on the show was from Blackwater. Davos and his son Mathos are listening to the bells ring from King's Landing, and Davos goes, they want to play music, we'll play with them. Drums! And his son just yells, drums! <laughs> and, then, and then the drums start. Mwah, I just love that. Oh, it's so good, yeah. It's good stuff. So, moving on to the more kind of discussion angle. For all that we do love John's compassion and loyalty in this chapter, of course, there is a victim in what he pulls off here, who is Chet. As he says in A Storm of Swords, he's losing a comfortable gig with the one authority figure who never beat him, which is just a <laughs> wretched little detail about Chet's life. And so, as we asked with Littlefinger in our last episode, how legitimate exactly is his grievance against Lord Snow and his buddy Sam? Oh, it's 100% legitimate. Yep, 100%. We're okay, good. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs> You can find us on Google Play and Podbean. No. Chet is obviously a terrible person, but I think it's yes. worth considering the context of his arguments and role in this chapter because he actually isn't wrong in his arguments that John is viewing the stewards as kind of this safe dumping ground for Sam where he can mm -hmm. just be put. Like, John eventually makes a better argument in this scene, but he starts off just saying, well, Sam can go to the stewards. And he's just like kind of implying that's where the useless people go, right? <laughs> the people who aren't rangers. And Chet kind of points that out, that that's how John is thinking. And Eamon backs him up. Eamon asks, well, can Sam hunt? Can he cook? Can he make clothes? And John has to admit, no, he really... Yeah. Can't do any of those practical steward things. So eventually, John's proposal rests on Sam being literate, and Chet is not. And of course, Sam's literacy is hugely important to his character arc, not only in terms of plot, him sending back the ravens from the Fist of the First Men, but also just in terms of his character, that it was it's the most kind of symbolic thing that keeps him apart from Randall is his desire to read and be a maester. Chet, of course, isn't literate, has no access to any of that, but it's not Chet's fault that he can't read. Right. And that's, that's kind of the sticking point here. He comes from the bottom rung, even among peasants. His father didn't even have the right to farm land or any kind of trade. He just walked into a pond every day and walked out with leeches and sold those to the maesters, basically as few resources as you can possibly have in Westeros. This isn't that much different from John using his training to beat up the other recruits. I mean, this is an intellectual advantage instead of a physical advantage, but fundamentally, this is still nobles conspiring to use their advantages. The fact that Sam can read is in part a class advantage he kind of has over Chet. The fact that he's literate is a product of their birth. And obviously, John is doing the best thing for the Night's Watch as a whole, but Chet is kind of getting screwed out of a, a comfortable job here through no fault of his own. Yeah, he is getting screwed out of a job job but at the same time is he the best person for the job and i and i feel like i'm maybe going back on what i'm saying and when i was saying earlier about oh every, everyone has a place in the night's watch well i mean chen has a place right i mean he can still hunt and make clothes and do the different types of steward duties that are required of him to do but reading and writing and sending ravens is pretty freaking important to be you know the steward to the blind maester you know i i think that uh john is at an advantage here and that he knows that there is a big disadvantage in the stewards that Maester Eamon has, the two that he has, Chet and Clytus. Fundamentally, it's an important job that Sam could be doing here with Maester Eamon, and as I said, we see him doing that important job many times, and that has to ultimately take precedence over Chet's comfort. Like, he isn't being thrown in the stockades because of what John is doing here. He isn't being sent into exile. He just right. has to be with the dogs instead. Which sucks. I get that he had a nice, comfortable job inside. I'm, I'm not, like, discounting that he had a material loss of status here. But, yeah, in terms of the greater good, I think this has to be done. And I think it does matter that Chet's ultimate goal is not just get my job back, which I would be sympathetic to. 
but it's I'm going to kill everybody and set myself up as a rape factory overlord like Craster. <laughs> like, that does definitely yeah. diminish any sense of sympathy I can really have for the dude. The way he thinks about Sam and women in general in his prologue, it's that same kind of gendered stuff we see with Sam in John's last chapter where everyone's calling him a woman and saying he's, like, weak and womanly because he's fat. Like, Chet very much buys into that kind of violent, possessive attitude towards masculinity and sex in general. You know, we're talking about pre in pre-production about how in the last Catlin chapter we had a long section about Littlefinger right and about whether he was justified in, in his his feelings about the noble class in Westeros but the reactions of both Littlefinger and Chet are interesting in that they extraordinarily overreact to what they experienced you know Littlefinger as we talked about in Catelyn 7 becomes this person who's going to just fuck the nobility left and right and fuck people that he perceives as wronging him and especially people that don't even that have never wronged him like Ned Stark Samuel Tarly never wronged Chet here. I mean, if anything, Jon Snow was the person that wronged Chet. I mean, almost, this is kind of weird, but but Jon Snow is more of the Hoster Tully figure in this in, yeah, in Chet's story. Yeah, that's a great comparison, actually, yeah. And, and Sam is the Ned Stark figure in that, you know, Sam is the guy who benefits from what happens to Chet, but he's not the person who starts it. He's not the originator of the, the wrongs that are done to Chet, if you want to call them wrongs. No, I completely agree. I think Chet kind of is the flip side to John's optimistic argument about we just need to band together as a as links in the chain, as, as everyone who serves the realm, because what do you do with broken links? What do you do with people right. who really can't serve the common good, for whether it's for justifiable reasons or not? And that's something John's going to have to struggle with as well. Like when he's dealing with the wildlings, he's like, okay, yes, I like Mance, I like Torment, I like Egret, I sure as hell don't like Varamir. So what's the plan? He asks Mance at one point, like, what's the plan for those guys? Can you... You can deal with your enemies, but can you rule your friends? How can you keep these people in line? And Or when he's in the Night's Watch and he wants to elevate Satin and, you know, in incorporate the wildlings and band together in all these great ways. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, what do I do with Bowen Marsh? And I think it's important to have that flip side to make it really kind of realistic and make the politics resonate. That it's not just as simple as making this great speech as John does, although it is a good speech. But... He has to reckon with, okay, how do I handle it when people just aren't on board and can't be made to be on board? I mean, you have other characters too, like the Weeper from A Dance with Dragons, who's, they, they send envoys out to them and they find out that their eyes are like slit because that's what the Weeper does. And they're like, do we really want this guy to be coming south of the wall? Is, is that the person we really want, John? John's like, well, I mean, he's, he's bad, don't get me wrong, but you know, he still has you know, hot blood in his veins. He's still not a White Walker. And if he does end up dying at the hands of the White Walkers, it'll be turned into a white and, and these different things. So, I mean, there are limitations to John's argument and that at some level you're like, maybe kind of don't kind of like fuck the Weeper, like you got the wall in between you and, and, and the others. Maybe you don't want the Weeper and his band of wildlings to be on your side. Maybe you don't want someone like Varamir Sixkins to be on your side either. But John rationalizes bringing them to his side because he thinks that, you know, people breathing air and having blood in their veins that's flowing is more important than anything else. It's a great sentiment, but John himself violates it when he comes to the Boltons, because if he yeah. really does believe that, why is he marching off to fight Ramsay? Why is he sending Mant South to fetch Arya from exactly. Ramsay's clutches? Ramsay has hot blood in his veins. Why doesn't the same logic apply to him? And the answer is because it's really hard to live up to the ideal John is expressing here. It's difficult to strike this balance. Mm, that's fantastic. And I think that about wraps us for this episode for Game of Thrones John 5. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. And we appreciate your guys' patience in waiting two weeks for this episode. 
we uh we we enjoyed our Thanksgiving. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I had a great Thanksgiving. I hope I hope you all did too out there listening to us. Never apologize for America, Jeff. Never, never apologize I never for freedom. Never. So, as always, you can rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. You can check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on social media at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. More personally, you can find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com or at poorquentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. And if you guys are patrons or want to become patrons, we do have our first of two, maybe three parts, for Fire and Blood Volume 1 that is out there for all $5 and above patrons. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ASOAF. But for next time, join us as Tyrion bribes his way out of a jam yet again. So... Thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next week.